The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. We are so fortunate to worship an amazing God. The, the word that hit me as we were singing is just awestruck. And that's what God wants us to be of him. He wants us to be awestruck of him. And uh, so I pray that this coming week you find time to intentionally say, Lord, I just want to be in awe of you. Help me to do that, whether it's in your word, whether it's a walk in nature, whether it's a conversation with people. But Lord, you deserve to be in awe of. Help my heart to get there today. So welcome here this morning as we worship the Lord together. Uh, If you're new to our church family, we'd love for you to take the welcome card and the seat in front of you, fill that in. Or you'll see outside there's these QR codes that you can get our church app. And would you take the time to download that app? It has lots of the information you need about our church, a place that you can take sermon notes, all the places that you need to register for things. And you can also let us know of your visit there have a few things just to let you know that are coming up really soon that uh, we just want you to have a, on your calendar. The first thing is for tonight. Tonight we have our Come to the Core, which is an equipping event. And as staff, we've been reading a book called You Are What You Love, The Spiritual Power of Habit. And we're going to be talking about the first half of this book with you. And uh, Terry, Kevin, and I will be tag-teaming that. So please uh, take time to come tonight. Uh, again, it's a short time of teaching and actually a lot of discussion around your tables. And we hope that that's one of the things that just stirs our heart to be in awe of God as we think more about him tonight. And then this uh, Wednesday, of course, we have come to the table, and so please register by tonight so that we can order the food. So just so you're aware, on Wednesday nights, we offer a family-type meal here from 5.30 to 6.30, and so if you sign up, the food's made fresh back here. We have tables where we come and we sit, we have a meal together, and afterwards, there's a few things that are happening. We have English conversation circles, we have precept. I know for some of the young adults, they're going to come to just study, but one of the main things we want to encourage you to uh, take part in is our discussion groups, and that's an opportunity to come and and, uh, just be with a group of people to talk about the message and what we've been learning from Matthew so that we just go a little bit deeper than what we've heard this morning. And so please come, and if you're a part of those groups, the regular groups that want to meet like pretty much every week, we meet in the fireside room, and there's also a drop-in opportunity which is in the front of the foyer there. We have groups where we host those conversations together, so please make use of that. And these are more save the dates. Our membership meeting is on Sunday, February the 5th, and it takes place right after the church service. So please uh, just make note that on that Sunday you want to come and stay a little bit longer. And then on February the 12th, we have a newcomer's lunch. So if you're relatively new to our church and you want to get to know us a little bit better, we'd love for you to come and stay for a meal after the service on February the 12th. And a heads up for the women, we have a women's fellowship event on Saturday, February 25th. More information will come about that soon. And the last thing as far as a heads up is Mission Fest. Uh, We're blessed in our city that on a yearly basis, the churches work together to host a weekend where missions are highlighted. So there's guest speakers for main sessions, there's breakout sessions, and then there's lots of booths that just let you know what God is doing within our province, within our country, and around the world. So if you uh, haven't been a part of that before, please make note of that. It's the first weekend in February. I want to let you know that uh, our part of our church, our focus is missions, which we think is more globally. And when we talk about justice and mercy, that's more locally. And so, for example, when we talk about that, one of the practical things as a church that we're growing in is caring for those in need. And so we have our food bank, and our food bank takes place every other Thursday. Within a month right now, we care for 60 families, and by spring, we want to be caring for 100 families. We do this through Manitoba Harvest. So we're going to be telling you a little bit more about that, about ways that you can be involved, because we always try to supplement the food that's given, because they don't get a lot from Manitoba Harvest, so we try to supplement that from our church. And then we also take in baby formula for the Crisis Pregnancy Center. It's one of their greatest needs. The moms just need help with a practical thing of baby formula. So that's one of the ways that we try to love our community, and loving community means people interact interacting with people. It's not just the giving of stuff, it's the relational connections that are made as people come here. And today I'm just going to invite uh, Brenda Noble up and uh, Miriam Salas, and they're going to just talk with us a little bit about growing in cultural awareness. I, we have a team for our Justice and Ministry, Mercy Ministry, so Brenda looks over uh, growing in cultural awareness and equipping people to love our neighbors. 
we have Karen Ozarek who works over Dignity of Life and she also helps us with the political realms, just thinking about how can we as a church engage, engage wisely in the political things that take place. And David Pollandine especially looks at human trafficking. So I just invited uh, Brenda to come and share a little bit with us today. Thank you, Doug. And you've done a great job of introducing me already. And uh, we have a short video introducing Richard and Miriam Salas. And if you would like to know more, there's going to be a longer video on the website. So go to White Ridge Baptist Church website and have a look at that. And they've got really good advice for how we can help people who are new to Winnipeg. So enjoy the video. I'm Brenda Noble, and I lead English Conversation Circles here at White Ridge Baptist Church. We love to meet newcomers and help them learn English and learn about life in Winnipeg. We're starting up again on Wednesday, January 25th. But today, I'd especially like you to meet two people who can share with us about their lives, Richard and Miriam. Can you please tell us about yourselves? We are from Peru. We arrived 70 years ago to Winnipeg. We are serving through Life Transformation Ministry along with White Ridge to outreach newcomers in the city. Thank you very much. And I'm wondering what advice you would have for church members who would like to help newcomers. White Ridge Baptist Church is a very welcoming and loving church. I'm very sure that many newcomers would love to meet a new Canadian family. Please invite them or get um, to know one of them. Please invite uh, a coffee or lunch in your home or in Tim Horton. Uh, the other thing, make an intentional friendship with one family on time. Service in different way you can. Thank you very much. And that's very good advice that each of us can make friends with one family. So I hope that's an encouragement to the, the members of White Ridge Baptist Church. condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these, so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. Standing here, we're going to read the scripture that we're going to be hearing uh, Pastor Terry preach from this morning. And there's two passages, uh, one from Matthew 8 and one from Luke chapter 4. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gerardines, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me 
to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Amen. Please be seated. Amen. Thank you, Kevin and Linnell and worship team. I know, I know, a whole bunch of people are wondering why Jesus sent the demons into the pigs. It's kind of like uh, a whole bunch of people want to know where Cain got his wife. I mean, uh, it's just like, <laughs> I may not tell you this morning because I may not know, and, uh, but we're going to look at the scripture together. Hey, before I look at the text, though, I want to just give my uh, addition to what uh, Kevin and Doug have already done, inviting you tonight to join us at 7 o'clock as we come together to discuss uh, Come to the Core. It's an equipping event. I read recently a guy named Craig Dykstra said, the Christian faith is the practice of many practices. Such practices are habitations of the Spirit. So one of the things that we feel compelled to do is as we try to bring discipleship to an entire flock of people as we are as a church, is we're trying to encourage next steps both privately and corporately. So privately, the habits that we engage in, um, we believe that every one of us have some bad habits and every one of us can be invited by the Holy Spirit and by the encouragement of the body of Christ into displacing those bad habits with good habits. In fact, I was interested this past week to think about the fact that the word habitation and the word habit are from, of course, the same root. And the idea is, just like we say in the scriptures, it says that the Lord inhabits the praises of his people, so also every time you have this holy habit, whether it's reading the word of God or prayer or fasting or meditation or solitude or whatever it is, that's an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to inhabit you. We are temples. And so tonight, as we talk more about this, we're going to be encouraging each other to take next steps as uh, individuals and as a body of believers. So I hope you'll join us uh, tonight. And uh, like, like has been shared, uh, Doug, Kevin, and I will be tag-teaming that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have before us uh, a portion of your word that... Uh, has a lot of questions in it. It's an incredible, unforgettable story, a true story of what you did, Lord Jesus, when you set two people free. We've been singing this morning about songs about the way you are, are setting people free through your truth and by your spirit and by your power. And so would you help this morning, help us to study well and to think deeply and to apply well and just to understand, is there something in in our lives, in my life, that you wanna put your finger on and that for me, for us to experience deeper freedom in Christ. Help us as we look at your word in Jesus' name, amen. You know, as I prepared this morning, this message this week that I'm preaching this morning, I looked uh, back because over 10 years ago, in 2012, um, I, I, we preached through the Gospel of Mark. And I thought, well, gee, the, the same story is in the Gospel of Mark. Let me see what my notes were and my study was at that time. And I was interested to find out that back then, in 2012, Pastor Doug preached on the, the, the Jesus calming the sea. And the next Sunday, I preached on Jesus healing the demoniac, the man with a demon. And uh, here we are, 12, 10 years later, and we're doing the same thing. He preached last week on Jesus calming the sea, and I'm preaching today on Jesus calming the storm that was in these two men. So we're going to be looking at this. At that time, back 12, 11, whatever it was years ago, uh, I shared with the, the, the folks... Um, 
I shared with you my favorite movie, and I think I've talked about this a few times, so don't think I'm losing my mind here. Um, but I've shared with you that my favorite movie is The Mission, and, and it, it all became more real for us when we visited Iguazu Falls, and um, we were able to go and, and see one, we visited one of the, mis- the Jesuit mission homes near Iguazu Falls, where the Guarani were, were uh, being taught the Word of God and so on. And it was very interesting, and the, the story just kind of grabbed me even deeper. It's, it's kind of like one of those stories that just, I can't, it's, it's one of those stories where you might be done with it, but it's not done with you. It's got deep, deep themes that somehow resonate. When, then when we were in Bolivia, I, I, I found there was one story. These are true stories. One story that so grabbed me because of different ways. It was the massacre of eight individuals in the, in the little village of Mercamaya in the northern province of Potosi in Bolivia. And, and one of them was a missionary that, of the mission that we served with. And, and that, that story grabbed us so deeply because of some of the themes that again we found, but again going to North Potosi and visiting those people and knowing even some of the people whose grandparents were in the home that was attacked and so on was incredibly gripping for us. As I shared recently too, uh, the, the parent, my grandparents' stories from the world, Second World War that are passed on through my parents and now we, we, we have these stories written down. They grab us. And you're no different. You have the incredible power of story that you carry around as well. You have a pool of books that you've read and reread, perhaps, movies that you've seen and reseen, stories that you've told and retold. And you are sort of like the keeper of the stories. You are the keeper of certain key stories that you have been grabbed by. William Bosch said the sign of a good story is that even when you are done with it, it is not done with you. I was reading recently of an author that described true stories that are written in books, and he, he, he gave the top ten. This guy's name is Ryan Holiday, and he, he described how stories grabbed him, and then he talked about these authors that not only helped us in their craft of writing, but they helped us give insight into life and the human condition. And um, just in case you're interested in knowing what the top ten were, I'm just going to put those up for you. Maybe you've read some of these books. When I looked at the list, I found that I had written two of them uh, of the ten. But these are books that are all true life stories that have grabbed uh, hold of him, and he has uh, just put them out there for us to look at. I'm sure some of you are in book clubs and you've got your stories that have grabbed you, the books that you've read. Well, I share this because when we look at the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the keepers of the stories, the stories of Jesus. And um, they are the ones who, who have so much to say to us, the Gospel writers, about those three years that they lived and walked with Jesus. These are lived stories that they are now passing on to us. What basis do they pass the stories on? They were stories that impacted the apostles and that exalted Jesus. And what's in, what's Matthew, what Matthew is intent on, especially as we've seen, is showing the power and the authority of Jesus over everything. So far, we have seen the stories like Jesus healing the leper, Jesus healing the servant of a centurion soldier, Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law and several others that come to their house that evening in Capernaum. And today we are going to be reading about how Jesus uh, set free two men who had been demonized. We also saw last week of Jesus calming the storm. So the point is that Matthew is showing that Jesus has power and authority over disease and illness, over nature, over even the demonic world of evil and Satan. And the story in the scripture that we're looking at today is hard to forget. It carries those themes with it that are deep themes in our lives as well. You see... The story of any one of us is somehow the story of all of us. 
That's what makes stories so important is that even though you might be totally distant from the context of the story, there are themes in the story that are like underground rivers that resonate within you. Themes of redemption, freedom from bondage, brokenness, and and salvation. Themes that you and I resonate because we're human beings and because we're all more alike than we are different. And so this morning, as we look at this scripture, there are deep themes that I trust will apply to you, that God will resonate within you. But before we look at the text itself, let's take a moment to talk about demon, demonic oppression. The scriptures talk so many times. In fact, there are several, but six very detailed stories of how Jesus set, the, set free those who were uh, oppressed and obsessed with demons. And today you will you know, find that many people are unbelieving in this whole realm of the evil. Uh, when we first of all look at this scripture, one of the things I want to identify is that whenever the gospels rec- reference demonic possession, is usually used, translated, the word is one word in Greek, which is on the slide here, daimonizomai. It means to be demonized. It means simply to come under the influence of a demon, an evil spirit, sometimes called an unclean spirit. And so it, it means to be coming under the influence, and obviously influence can be various levels of demonic influence, from obsession to oppression to possession, perhaps, and everything in between. Today, as we look at this, um, we're going to be studying some of these things. You know, the thing about today's world is that in many ways, many people have lost, completely lost a contemplative side of, of being and living. And so, therefore, because they have lost a contemplative side, when I say that, I'm, I'm referring to the belief in the transcendent and in the supernatural world. The contemplative side of humanity has been lost to a very concrete, pragmatic, scientifically proven side. And when we have done that, of course, we become victims to a whole world that we are ignorant of. And so, no longer believing in evil as a personal entity that can have presence in this world and even in our affections and desires. Many people in North America see evil as simply bad people doing bad things instead of this personal entity. Contrary to popular popular notion, the devil is not a red dragon in hell with a pitchfork. The devil is here on earth, and the Bible tells us that he masquerades as an angel of light, or that he is a wolf in sheep's clothing, or he is a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. The Bible speaks so much the truth of what the devil is all about and how he lurks. But however his presence is made known, we know one thing for sure is that his will and his ways are absolutely diametrically opposed to the will and the ways of Jesus. So if the will of Jesus is is On earth as it is in heaven, the will of the devil is on earth as it is in hell. That's the ways of the devil. Jesus has come that we might have abundant life. The enemy has come to rob, kill, and destroy, John 10.10. There is a spiritual war going on, whether you're aware of it or not, whether you're in the battle or not, there is a spiritual war going on, and you can get caught in the crossfire of that war if you're ignorant of it. And if you wander onto the battlefield unprepared and unprotected. C.S. Lewis writes this. He says that there is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and then counterclaimed by Christ. Counterclaimed by, sorry, by Satan. Counterclaimed by Satan. In this capacity, Satan is continually lying, continually deceiving people into believing lies. Satan has a PhD in psychology and sociology and philosophy and whatever other isology. He is an expert at manipulating facts, 
truths, half-truths, falsehoods, lies. He is a persuasive and convincing enemy, and he sows deceptive ideas into our minds that play into the sinful, disordered desires of our hearts that then get normalized in a sinful society. We shared this a few months back. This is what it looks like. Sorry, I'm way out of line here. Where am I? <laughs> okay. This, there we go. <clears throat> the way that the three enemies work together is that Satan sows these deceptive ideas, falsehoods, lies, deceptions, and then it plays to the heart's desires, the, the things that we love, that we can, we can get attracted to, and then it gets normalized in a sinful society so that we don't feel so bad, we don't feel so ashamed, we don't feel so guilty. And so the enemy has his way on earth, even as it is in hell. And so what is the point is that essentially Satan is an expert at weaponizing lies. He's an expert at weaponizing lies and falsehoods and half-truths and deception. He's a master manipulator. He plants ideas. He gets to our desires. He normalizes them in the society, in the behavior of those around us. It's happening all the time. It's in our face. And for, I'm going to just mention one example. It made medical assistance in dying. I mean, it's just plain as day. It's, it's as plain as day that the narrative, the narrative that is being carried on the waves of media is laden with lies. Laden with lies. And it, it just sounds so incredibly logical sometimes. And people are getting trapped in that logic, in that narrative. And the enemy is having his way, and lives are being Rob, kill, and destroy. That's what Satan's about. So how does the devil spread lies and deceptions that rob, kill, and destroy? He does it through demons. He does it through evil spirits. He does it through unclean spirits that do his bidding. And if you study scripture about this theme, or if you read a book like C.S. Lewis's uh, Screwtape Letters, you will see that if the devil can get you down without having to come like a roaring lion, he'll come as an angel of light. He'll come like in sheep's clothing. He'll come subtly. He does not want to be seen as evil and bad, because then you'd say, oh, stay away. And so he'll come in a deceptive and cunning way, often lurking in the shadows of your desires. And he'll try to find a foothold in your life. And once he has this foothold in your life, he'll just keep on hammering at that area, tempting you, causing you to stumble, isolating you. Divide and conquer is his strategy. And so as we have talked about this demonized word, this word demon possession, demonized, is, is a word that, that can affect many people many different ways, from possession to obsession to oppression. And uh, before we move on to the text, I think I want to say just a word, because I think some people go there, and sometimes it's dangerous. I want to say a word about mental illness. And this is a very, a very dangerous subject to enter onto. But here's the way I want to, here's the, what I want to say on this subject. We believe that the scriptures teach us the holistic view of humans. What I mean by that, I mean that as we look at the word of God, we read that, that God made us physical beings with bodies, spiritual beings with souls. We have emotions we have desires. We are whole beings of many different things that we've compartmentalized and, and decided on. And so therefore, we get broken because of sin. Not personal sin all the time, but sin. We get broken and we get sick in our souls, in our minds, in our spirits, in our emotions. And so we need discernment, therefore, that if we're going to seek healing and fixing from the brokenness that sin has caused, we need discernment as to what is broken. Is it mind? Is it emotion? Is it heart? Is it soul? Is it spiritual? Is it physical? So therefore, to, to, to go to get treated and have a treatment 
of somebody that doesn't believe in all of the tools in the toolbox can be a dangerous thing. It's like the saying, if the only tool you have is a hammer, you tend to see everything, every problem as a nail, right? And so when we do face demonic, if we do face demonic oppression, and we go to somebody who doesn't believe in that whole world, well, we could be limiting our treatment. But at the same time, if we think that that whole world is what everything that we face is about, that is really foolish. Because sometimes we just need to go to the doctor and get some medicine. And sometimes a mental illness can be a chemical imbalance. And sometimes it can be vitamin-related, maybe. I mean, I'm not an expert on this at all. I just know that I want to... All knowledge is God's knowledge. And I want to open myself up to everything that he has and not exclude the evil realm, but not think that it's everything either. Does that make sense? We need to be holistic and pray for discernment about these things. Well, in the case of these two men in Matthew chapter 8, we're not told how it was that the devil got a foothold in their lives. We're not told how it was that they got enslaved as they were, but we do see the compassion of Jesus. And even as Jesus had calmed the storm on the sea, Jesus calmed the storm in these two men's lives. This story is about bondage and brokenness and deliverance. Mark tells us there was one man. Matthew says there were two. It very clearly seems like the same event. And when we harmonize Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we get a full picture of these two men. They would be called raving mad today. Today they would surely be given some other diagnosis. But the scriptures tells us that they were demonized, they were in bondage, they ran around naked, they lived in the graveyards, the evil spirits had such strength given to their human bodies that no chains could bind them, they'd break them. Night and day they would cry out, they would cut themselves with stones. They were living misery because of demonic oppression. Now the shore... The shore of the Sea of Galilee on the east side rises up steeply, and it is uh, the disputed territory today of between Israel and Syria called the Golan Heights. And on the east side of, of the Sea of Galilee, in the time of Jesus, it was completely Gentile territory, and on the west side of the Sea of Galilee was completely Jewish territory in the time of Jesus. So this is a cross-cultural mission trip that Jesus was taking the disciples on to cross over to the area of the Gadarenes, or the Decapolis, as it is sometimes called, the Ten Cities. And it was about a century before Christ when the Romans had arrived there, and along with their presence came all the pagan practices that Rome practiced, including raising pigs, which was not something you'd see in a Jewish community. And along with the uh, raising of pigs, every unclean practice also entered this area of the Gadarenes. And so you can imagine Jesus crossing over the sea to the unclean world of the enemy, declaring his lordship. Not only was the territory unclean Gentile land, not only did it, was it unclean because of the oppressors, the Romans that lived there, not only was it unclean because of the animals they raised, not only was it unclean because of the demonic spirits that were in these men, but the carriers of these unclean spirits lived among the dead bodies in the tombs. More uncleanness. This passage reeks, it drips of uncleanness. And for the average Jewish person to even think of going near this area, it was, forget it, it's not happening. We don't even read that the disciples got out of the boat, folks. We don't know what happened to the disciples. They just, they're just, it's all about Jesus here. You know, it's, it, it's a mission trip that Jesus took the disciples on, and they are over their heads, way out of their element, petrified. I can imagine at the end of this story that when the, the, the demonized men that have been healed are begging Jesus to let them go with him, the disciples are in the boat begging Jesus to not let them go. I mean, it's, just, it's just incredibly stark contrast here. And this encounter is incredible to, do, to study. We can't read this without seeing what Jesus is doing. Remember, as we studied last week, they'd come through this storm. 
And in the middle of the storm, when Jesus just said one word and all the sea became calm, they said, who is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? And now I think in their minds they're saying, who is this that even the demons obey him? Let's look at the scripture that we're going to be studying now. And I want to read it and study it in six quick sections. And uh, we're going to look at, uh, first of all, men that were terrorized. We cannot begin to imagine the experience of these poor souls. None of us have faced anything close to this kind of oppression. They were completely helpless. They were being terrorized within their bodies, an alien resident in their spirits, an extraterrestrial force that they had no ability to resist. We think about the demons themselves tormenting. In Luke's gospel, it says there's not just one or two. There was a legion of them, many of them. And they were so outgunned. These men were so outgunned, outnumbered, outwitted. And then Jesus arrives on the scene. And we read about Jesus triumphing. Notice immediately the response of the demons in verse 29. This is not the men talking. This is the demons talking through the voice of the men. I've had an experience once many years ago of this happening to me. There was a woman I knew at Bible school, and uh, her parents had entered, had allowed a foothold of the devil into their home through witchcraft. This daughter had grown up in that environment, and now at Bible school, there was an exorcism going to happen, and the elders of the church were going to do that. And I was a friend of this person. I was living in Kenora, and I got a phone call from her one day. And she asked me if I would fast and pray the next day because the elders were going to be praying over her. And even as I was speaking with her, the demon that was in this woman's body took over her voice and in a deep and guttural voice told me that I had nothing to do with her, that, that I should leave her alone. And I realized, it kind of rattled me. There was no question that this woman, <clears throat> by her own natural way, could, could, could sound like that. And so I went into prayer and fasting, and I heard about the deliverance that took place the next day in that church for that woman. It can be very alarming to have such an encounter, but it doesn't need to be, because demons like the devil are just masters at deception and lies, big boasting, big words, but they don't have the power of Jesus. They don't have the power. There's no need to be afraid. And so this woman was delivered. And these evil spirits in verse 29 and following, they they cry out to Jesus, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? Can you imagine? The The first time that we read of Jesus being called the Son of God is in the unclean territory of the Gentile world by men who were had unclean spirits. In fact, by the unclean spirits. Jesus, Son of God. And then they go on to say, have you come here to torment us before the time? This is the first time Jesus is called Son of God, but there's also some very important lessons in just this verse. First of all, demons know who Jesus is and the power he has. That's number one. Secondly, demons know that they are on the losing side and they will be one day subject to torment in hell. And thirdly, demons know that there is an appointed time before that time, very specific, there is an appointed time when Jesus, the Son of God, will judge them. Matthew 25, 41 shows us that clearly when he says, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire. Prepared for who? The devil and all his angels, that's demons. That's their destiny. They know it. They have borrowed time. How does Jesus treat the bondage? Of course, the most perplexing part of this story is why the herd of pigs? Everybody wants to understand that. I don't have an airtight answer. 
Why would Jesus send the evil spirits into the pigs? Verse 31, the demons begged Jesus to cast them into the herd of pigs. Luke adds in Luke 8, 31, Luke adds that that was the alternative to being cast into the abyss. What is the abyss? The abyss is the eternal realm that they are facing, the lake of fire for the demons. So perhaps their reasoning was that being anywhere is better than the eternal abyss. And knowing Jesus would never let those demons go out of one human being, son of Adam, into another human being, son or daughter of Adam, image of God bearer. Knowing that, they see the pigs, they may be just desperate. They said, send us into the pigs. Maybe it had something to do with the fact that Jesus, being a Jew, also didn't have any use for pigs. I don't know. We don't know. We have to be kind of silent because the Bible is silent. When you get to heaven, you can ask. I got a lot more important questions to ask than that. (laughs) But we're not told why. Verse 32, it says that Jesus speaks one word, go. And they go. The whole legion of demons left the two men and entered the pigs. Mark 5.13 says there were 2,000 animals that ran down the steep bank and drowned. The demons were gone. But so were the pigs. So the community now enters in, verse 33. The herdsmen fled into the city, and it's interesting that the Bible tells us that they especially reported about the demonized men. That was more impressive to them, that these men are now dressed and sound and in their right minds. That was more impressive to them than the fact that these pigs are all drowned. And the, mount, the men and women of the city come out in verse 34. This is the saddest part of the whole story. It says the whole city came out to meet Jesus. You would think that they would be amazed at his power. You would think that they would want to have him stick around. You would think that they would want to have him come to the city and heal some of the other people that were sick and demonized and, and have problems. You would think that they would want to have Jesus stay in their region and teach them. But no, they beg him. They beg him to leave. Just the day before, Jesus was being begged to stay in one area on the west side of the Sea of Galilee because there were other loved ones that were needing healing, other captives to be set free. But this community had no appetite for the Son of God. This community had no tolerance for divine intervention. They wanted life to continue the way they had known it. They did not want Jesus to interrupt their market, their economy, their society. The losses were great enough already, and they just wanted them to leave. Isn't that the saddest part of the story? And so Jesus left. The happiest part of the story is that In the other Gospels, Mark's Gospel says that the men went up to Jesus and begged to go with him, but Jesus said, go home and tell everyone what the Lord has done for you. And you know, years later when the Gospel comes back to that region, guess what? There are Christ followers in that region. Why? Because these men, they'd gone out and they had talked about this Jesus as the Son of God. The first place that Jesus wants to transform our lives is in our homes. Go home and tell everybody what the Lord has done for you. The first place that Jesus wants to see transformation happen is in our homes, our families. How do we apply this scripture to our own lives? Do you know what it was said of Alexander the Great that he could conquer the world, but he couldn't conquer his own vices? And so C.S. Lewis also in his book, Surprised by Joy, writes this. Before he was converted, he said, For the first time, I examined myself with a seriously practical purpose, and there I found what appalled me. I was a zoo of lusts, I was a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a harem of fondled hatreds. My name 
was legion. I wonder if on our most honest days we could identify with this statement that we see in ourselves as well, even as Christians who know the Lord, yet warring against our souls all kinds of fears, of ambitions, of anxieties, of sins, and they war against us. And Jesus wants to set us free. You know, I believe that we are more alike than we are different, and that this scripture has direct application to us in the sense that we also have storms raging within us that can be calmed by Jesus, and that we need to just be willing to bring to him these things. We may never face demonic oppression like we see in this story, but we might be demonized on one level where the devil gets a foothold. It can come through an addiction. It can come through an obsession, some neurosis, some psychotic behavior. And all of a sudden, the enemy starts to have his way And we realize he's appealing to the flesh. And we see it normalized in society so we don't feel so bad about ourselves. When Sigmund Freud walked the earth and was doing therapy with people, not suggesting we follow him at all, but he discovered something about humans. Here's what he wrote. That in his patients he found a force which defended itself with all its means against healing and definitely wanted to cling to the illness and to the suffering. Isn't that crazy? Sigmund Freud found in his patients this propensity to cling to the very thing that was causing the problem in their lives because, you see, it was, it was what they knew. It was the norm. It was comfortable. I see that in this community that said, Jesus, leave our community. Because because being set free from the bondage that they had was, was not something they could fathom to follow Jesus. I want to encourage you to to ask Jesus to set you free from whatever it is that the devil has had a little foothold in, maybe. And if you can say honestly to yourself or to the Lord that that there's a reticence, there's a hesitancy to even want to, that you're saying, Jesus, not not yet, not now, could you at least pray the prayer, Jesus, I, I, I confess to you I'm not fully willing, but I'm willing to be made willing. Okay? That that's a good first step. And I want to just share with you finally that if you can take this seriously, this willingness to be set free by Jesus in whatever area, here's the steps to freedom. Humble yourself before the Lord and confess the weakness, the sin. Just bring it into the light. The word confess means to say the same thing as what God's saying. Secondly, bring it into the light with another trusted Christian friend or pastor or leader. Don't do it alone. Thirdly, renounce that bondage, that that brokenness, that thing, that sin, whatever it is, and pray for forgiveness and pray for deliverance. And then finally, trust the Lord to heal you. Trust him to do it and be patient, stay close to God, and even if you fall again and again, and even if it takes a long time, keep pressing into Jesus and trusting him to set you free. Let us pray. And right now, as as we bow, I just want to to leave a moment. Would Would you bring yourself to God? If your eyes are closed, you can think on him. And just bring yourself to God. Say, God, here I am, and you know me. And you know the the wrestlings of my heart. You know the, the things I get snagged on those places I return to, the way the devil's trying to trip me up and tempt me. So bring that to God.
God, we bring our mess to you. We thank you, Lord, that we're all more alike than we are different. In some way, in some level, some degree, we, we've been influenced by the enemy who's sown seeds to the carnal flesh, the desires we have and are against you, and then we see in society that it, it, it's rampant, and so, Lord, we ask you to set us free. Help us to do real business with you, recognizing that we do it, we draw near to you because of your love. You are such a loving Father. We've been singing about it today. Thank you, Father, that you love us. So love us to wholeness and healing, we pray, through Christ. Amen. Amen. God, our Father, you love us so deeply beyond what we can comprehend, but we thank you. And we thank you that you sent us your son, that he could be a sacrifice for our sin. And we thank you that your grace far overcovers any sin that we might sin against you, that if we have confessed our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we thank you for what you've done in, in this gathering today and the word that you've given us this morning from, from your holy word. And we thank you, Lord, for what you've done in people's hearts. And I pray that you would continue to draw us to you, draw us to confession so that we can always know your grace. Thank you so much for what you've done for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a wonderful day.